Hey guys, it's Peter again. So if you listened to episode 1, you heard me doing the exit shit all by my lonesome. Well, now I'm doing the intro shit on this one all by my lonesome. And you know why. It's because we were originally doing one whole episode between uh, the What the Smart People Think segment and the original R analysis and bitch session about the uh, book. Uh, but now we are splitting them up into two separate episodes. So this is the intro. This is the What Smart People Think section. This is where Cece, my dear sister and co-host, basically just did a ton of research and I sat on my ass for a week. And she uh, she found some cool tidbits and quotes and shit like that. And uh, there's actually like kind of smart shit in here. So if you didn't listen to the last one because you figure we don't know what the hell we're talking about, maybe you'll like this one. All right. Enjoy the episode, guys. Peter, I find it really funny. I found this quote from Orson Scott Card in the course of my research. Once he said in an interview that his moral beliefs, his personal philosophy are inseparable from his work, his theology and institutional membership have no place in it. I find that hilarious and accurate, but I just thought it was an interesting tidbit (laughs) from a man we know to be pretty contradictory all around. (laughs) Yeah, no, he's definitely not a consistent guy. So there's... A huge wealth of information about Ender's Game on the internet, as we kind of expected there would be. I mean, the book's been around for 30-plus years, and it's um, kind of riddled with different controversial issues and ethical and moral quandaries. So it's not really surprising that there's tons of writing about it. I'm barely going to scratch the surface, so any of you guys who are interested, I really encourage you to go out there and look for yourself. Obviously, we're going to post citations of all the articles we reference here in the episode description and on our website. Yeah, also, uh, anything else we find, uh, <clears throat> CC found a ton of stuff in the research that we just don't have time to get to. We will be posting a folder of that on the website uh, on the Sci-Fi Sidebar you know, page area, so just go ahead and check that out if you want to read some more. We found a lot of information. So the first article I want to talk about is Creating the Innocent Killer, Ender's Game, Intention, and Morality by John Kessel. This article is, generally speaking, pretty opposed to the, I guess, sort of morals of Ender's Game, it argues that intention can't be the sole metric by which we judge actions, because the consequences of those actions matter too, and the act of genocide is never an accident, one way or another, so it sort of refuses to absolve Ender totally of moral responsibility for the xenocide that he committed. It describes Orson's gut card as thinking that the rightness and wrongness of an act inheres in the actor's motives not in the act itself or in its results. Orson Scott Card is quoted as saying that good people trying to do good usually find a way to muddle through. What worries me is when you have bad people trying to do good. They're not good at it, and they don't have any instinct for it, and they're willing to do a lot of damage along the way. I want to know what the hell he means by that. (laughs) No, no, I totally get that. Do you do you think that the, good people trying to do good always do good? Because isn't that the description of Ender, and isn't Xenocide bad? Mm, I don't think good people try and do good, like, I don't think it always works out. But I think he definitely nails it. Like, there is a real danger of bad people trying to do good, because that's where you get Machiavellian ideas, you know? Yeah, so I guess what you're saying is half the quote makes sense and the other half doesn't. I think the other half is... Uh, Maybe sometimes, but not always true. I think, abs- you know, only a Sith deals in absolute CC, and so I think we have to say, you know, usually. <laughs> well, the thing is that, like, Ender spends the entire book trying to do good and saying that all he wants is to do good, but he just can't seem to 
actually do good. And so to me, that kind of fits into the character of somebody bad who's trying to do good and screws it up. So I'm like, Orson, are you saying Ender's supposed to be a fundamentally bad person? (laughs) Or are you saying that by finding the queen's egg at the end, he technically muddles through and does good? Mm, Well, I think this book's an incomplete view. Like... Of Ender's life, you mean? Yeah, no, like, it, and we're looking at the first, you know, 16 years of Ender's life. Oh, yeah, I mean, he's probably a net positive in the universe, but not definitely a net positive, considering how badly he wants to be. Well, I mean, you see, well, I mean, we're not going to really get into it, but you see in the Lusitania, like, maybe he was net positive, maybe he wasn't, but, you know, they do curse him, so there's that. Oh, you mean for the Xenocide? Yeah, no, exactly, like, like you know, Ender the Xenocide is, like, like, Ender is almost a curse word that they say at one point when he tells them his name. Like. Yeah, so sort of on that note, this article is kind of all about the ways that Orson Scott Card manipulates the reader to sympathize with Ender so that we can't see him as evil. Um, and it makes a point of saying that the eventual notoriety of the figure of Ender the Xenocide only sort of works in the Lusitania trilogy because to the reader... Ender is like this innocent kind of almost godly figure. So like otherwise it would just be kind of a redundant point, you know what I mean? Instead of mm-hmm. sort of a dramatically powerful choice. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um the other thing I thought was strange about this article is that it seemed to treat the genocide itself as an accident. Like, or that Orson Scott Carr wants you to believe that it's an accident, which I'm not sure I agree with because I feel like it seems pretty clear that the um, like Colonel Graf and Mazer Rackham and all those figures are sort of the ones who are responsible. I mean, even they themselves claim responsibility. But um, it makes the point that none of those people actually get charged with genocide. So Graf gets charged with, you know, neglect of children and abuse and all sorts of stuff. But he never actually gets charged with genocide because to Earth at that time... That wasn't a crime. It was merely a defensive act of war and not the war crime that really, in fact, it was. Well, legally speaking, like, does it include non Like, does human law in, in, adhere to non-humans? Like, if someone was to, uh, you know, go outside and start shooting pigeons wholesale, it wouldn't be genocide. Like, that's not... That's yeah. not genocide. That's illegal... But it's not genocide. Well, but pigeons aren't intelligent. Buggers were intelligent. Right, but current law doesn't actually account for that. And you would assume that current law wouldn't, like, the language wouldn't change, you know, in the next 200 years if we hadn't encountered intelligent life. Yeah, no, that's true. So from a legal perspective, I'm certain there was no precedent for uh, xenocide. But I feel like, I don't know, I think it's more of a reflection of humanity's perspective at the time. Like, it wasn't that they didn't, it wasn't that they thought it was wrong but couldn't prosecute it. It was just that they didn't think it was wrong. And who wants to be the guy that prosecutes, you know, and or the, like, the hero, the guy that saved humanity? Yeah, but, I mean, you could also prosecute Graf. Like, it, if you're going to say that Ender was this unknowing sort of almost victim of manipulation that caused him to commit the crime, then his manipulators would be the ones who were guilty. But no one was saying it was manipulation. Like, that's us going back on it, and Graf says, yeah, like, this, anything that happened is my fault, sure, but, like, if you go by, you know, public opinion and all that, which is basically most of what politicians, especially in this universe, seem to care about, 
you know, there's there was no wrongdoing. There was only good. So I'm sure everyone was treated like a hero. And maybe the the trial got some information out about Graffin, which it did. You know, you read the later books, you hear that you know public opinion started to turn against him, but he was still like, he yeah, was he was still there. He was he still was doing by his no job. Means living the rest of his life in shame or anything like that. Like he got to be the minister of colonization and have right, still exactly. a successful life through which to kind of cope with all the monstrosities of his military days. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought this article was funny because it said that the motto of Ender's Game might as well be this hurts me more than it hurts you because they set uh, Ender up as this figure who is sort of, not only is he the savior of Earth in the sense that he you know eliminated a threat to humanity, but also because he then, by writing the Hive Queen and sort of shaming himself publicly, becomes the sort of holder of humanity's culpability in the xenocide so he gets to technically be like a victim of his own crime which i guess is is an interesting perspective i'm sort of uncomfortable with it because it makes ender seem like kind of crappy which i don't want to feel like no but you said it earlier like that's uh that's or sort of card kind of coming in and trying to convince you that ender was 100 percent in the right and maybe he wasn't i mean beans bean was smarter than ender sure but bean figured it out I think that, uh, to some degree, Ender probably had an inkling of what was going on. Yeah, well, actually, so this is going to take me out of order, but one of the articles I was reading suggested that Ender was kind of a willing pawn because he makes a point of saying early in the book, like, I'm going to let myself be the weapon that you want me to be. I'm going to let you shape me however you need to. And the likelihood that this genius child who was able to outsmart an entire alien race wasn't able to tell what was going on seems a little dubious when you think about it <clears throat> yeah exactly you have this you know uh military strategy pariah and the fact that he couldn't figure out that a couple of people who willingly accepted that they were not as good as him as strategy and uh, like they were not as smart as him that's why they needed him the fact that they were able to trick him is kind of ridiculous yeah and you can there's sort of hints throughout that his subconscious knew what was going on because he had that dream where he drowned Valentine and when he saw that she was dead started crying that he was only playing a game that it was just a game and like he didn't actually mean to kill her which is basically almost word for word what he says after he finds out that he killed all the buggers so you know maybe he didn't consciously really fully accept it or realize it but I think subconsciously he kind of had an inkling and on top of that he gets a little bit more moral culpability because he and Graf were talking about um, the buggers when they were on their way to Eros and Graf said that they would kill every last bugger because the buggers would kill every last human if they had the chance and Ender said you know in that choice he's in favor of surviving so really the only reason Ender regretted it was A because maybe he was sort of too gentle to actually go through with it but also because later on he finds out that he didn't actually have to kill all the buggers to ensure humanity's fate I think that's kind of what seals his guilt later in life yeah i think definitely at the time he would have 100 done it anyway like, i think that you know you're, you're right he talks about how much he was willing to do it he was willing to do what it took and i think you know it, it, when it pushed comes to shove he would have done whatever it took to ensure humanity's survival oh, you really it's think he would have willingly committed genocide it seems accepted by i mean certainly in the book that he wouldn't have if he had known and he even says he wouldn't have the only reason he did is because he wanted to tell uh, the people handling him, screw you guys. I mean, you know, 
he killed he already killed billions of buggers like he fought many battles against them he killed so many of them i think the greatest moral challenge he would have had was knowing that the the humans he was sending to their deaths were actual people and not like i think at the end of the day when it was choosing whether or not he was going to send the little doctor down to the planet to detonate it like i think he would have thought more about the human power than he would have thought about the bugger fleet yeah i think i don't know he seems to i mean it's like he keeps saying it's definitely I think it was quoted in basically every article that I read was the quote about how in the moment where he destroys his enemy, he also loves them because he truly understands them. I I am not sure I agree with you that he could have annihilated an entire race that he had come to empathize with enough to understand them mm-hmm. just for self-preservation. But on the other hand, he did kill Bonzo and Stilson for self-preservation, so it's debatable for sure. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Like, self-preservation to him was a totally, was a tactically sound decision. Right. Um, actually, on that note, another comment that they made in this article about how Ender set up is like, <clears throat> uh, sort of completely innocent in everything he does, is that every time he kills someone, like a human person, Bonzo and Stilson specifically, um especially Bonzo, his justification is kind of bolstered because of the idea that quote, he's not fighting for himself alone. He's fighting for the fate of the earth because it depends on his survival. And if he dies, then the last hope of the human race dies with him. So not only is he justified in sort of defending himself, but he's actually defending like the prospect of humanity's survival when he kills Bonzo. So yeah. Orson goes to great lengths to sort of make sure that Ender is completely unblemished morally, which is interesting. Well, I think that comes to that, uh, we've talked a lot about how OSC kind of let his religious beliefs really affect his writing and his storytelling. And, um, I think that probably comes into like that savior complex. Like he wanted Ender to be that savior. Yeah, definitely. And this, you know, the savior couldn't have done wrong. Like if you read the Bible, there really isn't, you know, Jesus, I'm sure Jesus like, I, I don't know. I have, I have no idea. But in this book specifically, <laughs> where we have an... I mean, it was 2,000 years ago. What do you want from me? But, like, in this book specifically... Does remember what happened back then? Yeah, no. Someone give me some court documents. Uh, <laughs> no, in this book specifically, though, we have, like, a full accounting of this, you know, character's life. And we can see that he was not perfect. He did have faults. So I think that, one, OSC's dedication to creating this, this, you know, uh, what, what was it, the, the Messiah figure from the start was flawed, but I think this is his continuing to try to do it. He really didn't want anyone to find Ender at fault in anything. And maybe, maybe the later series is kind of his conceding that, okay, maybe, maybe it's a little bit his. And that, you know, that came out like 10 years later. So that there's a chance that he has some sort of a uh, personal development in that time. Well, speaking for the day, came out the year after Ender's game, but that's neither here nor there. The point that I would want to make is that, um, Um, in order to sort of have the Lusitania trilogy work as it did, Ender needed to be set up as this sort of infallible moral figure. And everybody looked to him for moral judgments. He was the speaker of the dead, you know? So he couldn't be fallible, basically. Well, we don't. We can't really get into that uh, anymore because we are trying to do something later on that. But, like, yes. he wasn't... The, it's very specific that speakers of the dead are not judgment. I think that's a, that's a, 
that's something we should get like right now. Like they're specifically yes. they cannot judge. No, but I mean his his understanding had to be perfect. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay. But I but I, you, that is a fair point. I mean, clearly he couldn't cast judgment on them. But anyway, I digress. Um, the next article I read was called Ender's Game, Genocide and Moral Culpability by Jeffrey Ryder at patho- or excuse me, pathos.com. Um, I think this is funny because it also brings up points from the Kessel piece. It sort of disagrees with Kessel in some points, saying basically that Kessel doesn't differentiate between the absolution of Ender um, and the sort of greater good and well-intentioned arguments for perpetrators of real-world genocides, because Ender suffers a lot of comparison to Hitler because he perpetrates a genocide, and there's a lot of literature about that. I didn't really get into any of those articles, but um, to the extent that some people call uh, Orson Scott Card a sort of Hitler apologist in some of their writings. Not not mainstream opinion, but, you know, there's always haters. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's no saint, but I don't think he's, you know, an anti-Semite. Well, probably. I'm not going to comment. He might be. He might be. (laughs) Let's not forget Rose to Nose. Let's not forget Rose to Nose. I'm not going to comment on that anymore. (laughs) But the point is that um, the Kessel article, the first article, is sort of basically says that by saying Ender's not responsible, then we're accepting any, you know, tyrant who's ever isolated a community and started executing them in the name of the greater good, which I think is an unfair comparison, as does Jeffrey Ryder. But he also points out that Card, um, and this is really interesting to me, Card sort of issues the expectations of the scary bug-eyed monsters from space as the sort of mindless, voracious beasts, like the two-dimensional villains who are just out to get humanity and so on and so forth. And that's sort of the idea that humanity had of them initially, but by introducing Ender to the Hive Queen later on, um, he sort of recasts that archetype as a peaceful, if a bit imperialistic, like advanced culture that's grown past infighting and is sort of so altruistic that they're willing to forgive their destroyer because they know that he was ignorant of his crimes. Um, There's a great quote that says, When Ender realizes that the bugger species have been contacting him, he develops a connection with them closer than any he feels towards any human but his sister. In the Ender's Game novel, it's the adult military officers who are the others, not the alien insects. Mm. I just thought that was a really interesting point. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm just gonna go ahead and jump real quick on the uh, the part about how like the buggers were. Or, there really is never uh, the formix. The formix were never able yeah, to. Yeah, really, use the respectful uh, term. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm like, there's got to be a better term than the formix if we're gonna talk about them. Them is this very altruistic and understanding society. Yeah, the buggers. <laughs> yeah, the stupid buggers are so nice. God, like, <laughs> anyway. So the formix, uh, they were. I think, like, it's kind of cool the fact that they were so altruistic and, like, you know, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, man, it's fine. I, it's cool that you killed all of us. <laughs> We've all been there, man. Yeah, We've no, all no hard feelings. killed people. Listen, man, have a Snickers. Like, you're not yourself when you're hungry. <laughs> like, <laughs> were you hungry? We thought you might be hungry. <laughs> so we made Have a colony food. world. Do you feel better now? <laughs> have 300 more. No, so seriously, though. <laughs> like, if we're going to say, like, there's this extremely altruistic society, I think, like, we have to, uh, you know, I, I just want to comment, like, why I think they are. Yeah. I guess. 
And it comes from like their their means of communication. The fact that it's mind to mind, it's telepathy. It's there's no lying. There's no. It's like one hundred percent cooperation. I think that level of honesty and understanding is probably why they were. And then they you know created that bond with Ender, that was not quite the same as what they had before. They made that clear, but it was something wholly new and just about equal to that. So I think that that's probably why. I think that makes sense. It's sort of like by the end of the book, the Formics understood Ender even to a deeper extent than the way he understood them. Mm -hmm. So that kind of ultimately facilitated their comeback to be seen in the Lusitania trilogy sometime next year. (laughs) No, no, this year, Cece. It is 2018. Are we going to do it this year? It's date yet to be announced. Anyway. TBD. (laughs) So I found this really good book um, called, you know, pretty obviously, Ender's Game and Philosophy. The Logic Gate is Down. And it had several really good articles. I couldn't get through a fraction of them, honestly, in the time that I had. But if you guys are interested, you should definitely look this book up. Um, One of the articles I want to talk about is called The Enemy's Gate is Down, Perspective, Empathy, and Game Theory by Andrew Zimmerman Jones. The key lesson of this article is that or excuse me, the key lesson of the books is that winning a conflict is best achieved by truly understanding an opponent, at least according to this article. And it defines game theory as the art of understanding how other people think and consequently being able to figure out what they will choose to do. Cool, because I've wondered what game theory is for years. (laughs) It keeps popping up in my life and I'm like, I don't really know what that is. That's just one definition coming to you from Tom Siegfried, but it does help me understand it a lot better. Um, Tom Siegfried also says that Ender's Game is all about choosing strategies to achieve goals, about adults plotting methods for manipulating young Ender, Ender choosing among maneuvers to win on a simulated battlefield, and Ender's siblings devising tactics for influencing public opinion. So even if you step away from all the sort of ethical questions about genocide and everything, there's a lot of lessons to be learned about how to succeed in competitions and how to sort of overcome problems in leadership and so on and so forth, which I think is in part why Ender's Game is generally known to be recommended reading for military officers. So it's like a, it's, you know, the late 20th century version of how to make friends and influence people. Kind of, yeah. Ender doesn't have a lot of friends, but influence people, sure. He's a very respected leader. (laughs) His underlings are extremely loyal. Um, this article mentioned how a Marine officer actually uses leadership techniques from Ender's Game in training his soldiers at Quantico. So I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. Um, but yeah, this article basically argues that Ender kind of unknowingly applied game theory to win. Um, and it also argues that the reason Ender never figured out that he was being manipulated by Graf and Mazurakum was because he never considered them enemies, so he never really tried to get in their heads like he did the heads of his enemies. I don't know how much I buy that, but it is an interesting point. Uh, okay. I feel like he kind of saw them as his enemies, but like he didn't really want to because he wanted to be the weapon most of the time. So, I think intellectually he was like, yeah, these guys are probably not looking for my best interests, but also, you're right, he subconsciously kind of wanted to be that weapon. He just never really wanted to play offense against them, you know? He wanted to go along with it generally, so we never really tried to dissect them. Um, As a quick aside, I saw on the philoticweb.net forum... Whoa, 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 please, please. Sidebar. Excuse me. As a quick sidebar, um, I saw a theory that casts Peter as the id, 
Valentine as the superego and Ender as the ego in their little family dynamic, which I hadn't thought about before, which I thought was cool. That I'm literally cool. going in order of my notes, which is why this is so jumpy. <laughs> <laughs> but for those of you who aren't aware of the theory of id, superego, and ego, uh, the... Sure, let's, let's inform you all about Greek, <laughs> Real Greek <quick>. philosophy. <laughs> what was it, Plato? I'm not even sure. Plato or Socrates. One of those was made up. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. it might be Socrates. There's anyway, a running theory that one of them was made up. One of them wasn't a real person. I think it's Plato. But anyway, continue. So, the point is, um, the it is kind of the primitive, instinctive, self-preserving part of your consciousness. While the superego is the part sort of imposed by society, it's like your values and morals, your rationality. It controls the id. For the most part, sort of holds it back, at least in theory. Um, And the process of the superego holding back the id is what creates the ego, which is sort of the id that's then been tempered by the superego. And having Ender be that... Um, kind of fits perfectly because he is basically Peter val- uh, tempered by Valentine's heart. So That is actually really cool. <clears throat> I've never thought about it. I know. Way. Which is why, even though it wasn't actually in a published article, I thought I'd include it because it was a good point. I also haven't thought about that uh, structure <clears throat> since junior year English in high school. Oh, you did it in English? That was totally a theology thing for us. Oh, man, no. That was, that was way too... Uh... Honestly, I just, I'm the only English class, uh, religion class I remember was world religions because that class was cool and the teacher was insane. The rest of it was just checking out. <laughs> teacher once a week mentioned how he met Padre Pio, and we're still not <laughs> sure if it was true. I don't even know when Padre Pio died. I have no idea either. I was him for one year for freaky Halloween. I have no you idea when he died. Pio for for Halloween. <laughs> Do you not remember this? Literally. Did you go out trick or treating as Padre Pio? <laughs> yeah, it was the year that. <laughs> the, no. The, Wait, it was the year the Phillies went to the World Series, I think. And here's the kicker: I took, I took. Or to be fair, that was I was eleven. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and no, here's the kicker: I got a red felt P in the shape of the Phillies P and glued it to my freaking black Padre Pio <laughs> hat. Classic. No, no, no! It was the hat. Oh my God, Peter! Why? I thought I you were saying it. that was like a like a uh, homeschool thing, like a Saints Day thing. Oh no, no, no! I did that you too. You did it for Halloween. Oh no, I doubled up. I doubled down that year. <laughs> and how was your haul? Did you take census? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was pretty. It was pretty good. Um, but uh, census is a little bit of a rough word around Catholics. It gets a little triggered for the Christmas season. <laughs> census. Yeah. Okay, because it of, was a census because of Bethlehem. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, was that not immediately apparent, Cece? <laughs> it was a Idiot. little bit of a stretch. I'm sure all of our listeners got it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they all Just got not it. me. Because they're all super Orthodox Christians, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Who super loved all the stuff we said about Orson Scott Card and homophobia. <laughs> anyway. I'm not sure which one of these options is worse. <laughs> Whatever, just listen. Just listen and share. That's all we care about. Listen to our shout in the void. We don't Even care. Even if you hate Cheros, we don't care. Oh yeah, hate Cheros. Go like, yeah, man. Listen to this. This is such bullshit. Like I hate yeah, these guys. Yeah, it's such a stupid podcast. Listen to these, to these ignorant about. assholes. Hey, whatever it takes, man. <laughs> just get these shares. Anyway, another article I listened to is or read, excuse me, is about <laughs> child abuse. Six Peter. What, what what the hell? If I be abusing children, I don't really have children. What do you want from me? No, just saying, your attitude is a little blasé. <laughs> Considering this article that you didn't know I was going to talk about next. That's all I'm saying. I don't know what you're talking about, but go ahead, continue. Talk about your article. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk offline. Okay. Um. So anyway, so this article is called Prisoners of Childhood. Child Abuse of the Development of Heroes and Monsters in Ender's Game by Melissa Gross. 
Um, this article was pretty enlightening to me. It talks about the cycle of abuse. Um, one example of which is Ender signaling out Bean. Um, once Bean's under his command, even though he feels like crap about it, thinking about how Graf did the same thing to him. It talks a lot about uh, children exhibiting destructive behaviors in response to external pressures or abuse. Um, there's obviously, this book's obviously rich with examples of children exhibiting destructive behaviors, basically anytime Ender's in a fight, etc., without even talking about the bugger side of things, because again, he didn't technically know. Um, the way that Ender said of his battles that he makes it impossible for his opponent to ever hurt him again, that he grinds them and grinds them until they don't exist, um, sort of gives echoes of uh, things said by dictators with abusive backgrounds that acted basically to ensure that they'd never be victimized again, which again is kind of a creepy Hitler parallel for Ender. Sorry, Ender. I but really the thing... bringing this out. I do like you. Huh? I really don't want to be bringing this stuff out. I do like you, Ender. <laughs> yeah, I do like you. I'm cool with you, Ender. I'm just saying what the people said. Um, anyway, well, so another interesting thought that she brought up was the idea of the helping witness, uh, which is not a concept I was familiar with. But um, basically, Valentine was this for both Ender and Peter at different points. A helping witness is somebody who is in the life of an abused child and basically helps by giving them sort of a concept of love and by assuring them that they're not responsible for their circumstances and that they are victims. They don't even need to be able to help. They just have to be able to love the child and have the child feel that. So for Ender growing up, it was Valentine. Then when he went to the uh, battle school, it was Eli. Then it was Dink and Petra and Bean. And then eventually when he was finished with everything, he went back to being Val. <clears throat> but Valentine becomes this for Peter after Ender leaves. And that seems to play a role in turning him from this sort of monsters out of control child to a gifted and altruistic statesman, the great hegemon Peter. Um, so I thought that was interesting the way these kids do sort of line up with principles of child psychology when these children are put under immense stress. Especially like, because like, you know, psychology and things like that are, are that idea of you know, what exactly constitutes abuse for a child, especially, mm -hmm. is kind of a relatively new thing. Not super new, but, like... Like last century or so, maybe. Yeah, no, last century. But, like, think about, you know, he was writing this in the 80s. Like, it was still uh, not a, a brand new idea, but not a... Th like, this is a pretty thoroughly vetted field now. That's true, yeah. In the last 30 years, I'm sure tons of breakthroughs have been made. Certainly what was considered abusive in the 80s is not the same as what was considered abusive today. Exactly, you know, and, and we're starting to realize that, like, things that we, that seems, you know, completely inconsequential are very, very much consequential in a, in a child's development. And I think that's very interesting that, because, you know, uh, maybe in the 80s, that's just, you know, Peter was just seen as horseplay. Like, you know, like that idea of, like, you know, older brother. Kind oh, of yeah, boys will be boys. The, yeah, boys will be boys, that whole idea. How's Ender supposed to grow up not to be a sissy? Yeah, exactly. And, like, kind of the OSC was going from the start going, oh, well, actually, this is not, like, a super awesome thing. Yeah, this that's isn't, true. This is like, great. This is not, like, regular horseplay. This is abusive, traumatic stuff. Yeah, exactly. There's a difference between just, you know, wrestling with your brother and then also, like, your brother coming into your room at night wearing a mask or something. Yeah. Like, there, there's totally. a difference. 100%. Yeah. And I think it's very cool that OSC kind of called that from the start. That's why OSC is kind of this weird paradox to me of, like, on one hand, super understanding and very interesting and insightful on topics, and then also, like, hates gay people. <laughs> He's both very close-minded and very prescient. It's a very interesting person. Our, our dear, dear, contradictory Orson Scott card. <laughs> um, 
The final point from this article I want to make is that uh, what made Ender special in a lot of ways was his ability to sort of look at a situation, assess his options, and when he couldn't find one that was good enough for him, he would invent a new option. And in the end, he kind of did that with the sort of id and superego sides of him. He didn't have to do the kill-or-be-killed thing anymore because he found this new path where he could be pacifistic and still survive without being a victimizer or a victim. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, that, uh, that's, that's definitely a really cool point. Um, so, this other article, War Games is Child Play by Matthew Brophy, also from the Ender's Game and Philosophy book, it talks about how framing war as games is what made it possible for Ender to commit the xenocide in general. Um, and he talks about how that sort of plays a role in the real world. So then, I don't know, Peter, if you remember this, I didn't know about it, but apparently the U.S. military released a game called America's Army, which I guess is a first-person shooter. It's like a free online game. Um, sort of as almost a marketing play for the Army, and apparently it really boosted public opinion. Um, and then America's Army and Call of Duty and all those sorts of like realistic first-person shooters and games like that are actually really popular among deployed soldiers and are even a lot of times encouraged by their officers. Um, Army training is sort of moving in that direction of sort of encouraging more and more war games, more or less. Um, The... Sorry, some of the officers are kind of concerned that it's desensitizing this generation to violence, as, you know, the public at large is not just the military. But um, a lot of officers really feel like it's psychologically helpful to a soldiers because it helps them sort of compartmentalize and treat like the actual violence of their lives as a game, so that it doesn't do as much damage to them. That's uh, that's actually I didn't know about that one from the uh, military, but that that's something I'm aware of though, like the idea that um, that you can use things like video games to help yeah help soldiers compartmentalize. You also see things with the advent of VR and the affordability of that, mm-hmm. of, uh, of psychologists actually using this specifically with soldiers that are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder to kind of immerse themselves back in that environment. And it, what do they call it? They call it immersion therapy. Right. So it, that's, a, that's a cool point, though, like how the idea of video games kind of coming in and almost helping soldiers separate the violence from their from actually what's going on. Yeah, it's like some people think it's a good thing and some people think it's a bad thing, but either way, what seems to be happening is it helps them sort of confuse the lines between artifice and reality, where in the theoretically beneficial way, that sort of absolves them from the actual trauma of those experiences. It's an interesting I will concept. S- I will say this as far as like whether or not it's beneficial, uh, there's a kind of a... Uh, there's an idea where Basically, you're just trying to get your soldiers home alive. That's the final goal. Right. So if you can manage to help them compartmentalize the, the fear, the, the violence, whatever you want to call it, then they, they have, they're going to better respond to situations. Maybe their reaction times are improved, as people have proven from video games. <clears throat> Things yeah. like that. And then there's also the argument that now they're going to suffer long-term psychological damage when they're home. Right. But I think the, the idea is that at least they're home. Yeah. I mean, I think that the hope is that by including these simulations in their training, it won't cause as big of a psychological impact, the stuff that they do when they're overseas. Hopefully they're right. So much the better if we can not damage our soldiers mentally as well as physically. Definitely for it. 
Yeah, no, that's for sure. Anyway. One last article. The Unspoken Rules of Manly Warfare. Just War Theory in Ender's Game. Maybe I should reemphasize. Just War Theory in Ender's Game. (laughs) (laughs) This confused Peter earlier. This is by Cody W. Cooper and is also from Ender's Game and Philosophy. Peter, do you know the causes, or excuse me, the five requirements of a just war? Uh, Back to high school theology. I did learn these in high school theology. Let me take a guess. Okay, (laughs) Catholic school. (laughs) God, that's the one thing. Okay, so... (laughs) That's what you got from it. Let me see. We've got... um, Minimize... You're able to minimize damage to civilian populace. Eh, Sort of. Oh, okay. Well, give me that one. Okay. Uh, That's a freebie. Uh, (laughs) There has to be realistic and truly beneficial goals. That's probably probability of success. Yeah, no, that's like... Yeah, no, exactly. Realistic goals. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, wait. You have to be able to... It has to be like an actual nation declaring it, right? Yeah. Legitimate authority. You have to have legitimate authority. I'm guessing, like, when these were written... Like by the because the just war theory is like mostly a Catholic thing, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it, it originated <laughs> with Catholics actually in Italy. Oh I no! Be, I believe don't say it was crusade. Italy. Don't say crusade. Um, <laughs> crusade. No, <laughs> for the crusade. <laughs> no, to, but but at least they weren't following it themselves. At least like the in the modern day, it <laughs> at least they well. were breaking just war theory. <laughs> <laughs> it, it speaks to its credibility <laughs> that they broke it for the crusades. They're like, oh shit, we messed up. <laughs> no, but it was, I believe, you know, our, our one listener can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm almost 100% sure it was done to justify the Crusades, which is hilarious. It was written. It doesn't justify the Crusades. It was written during, like, the Second Crusade to justify the Crusades. Wow, that's really awkward. I didn't know that. See, see, it really helps when most of your, uh, your people can't read. That's so true. It was written, so nobody knew what it said. <laughs> yeah, they never spoke it out loud. That was the, the other rule. The town were not given this, therefore. That, that was the first rule. You cannot speak the Just War Theory out loud. Only the Pope knows. <laughs> Whichever Pope it is now. Well, one However of the many Popes they have now. <laughs> anyway, do you have any more guesses, or should I just tell you? Wait, wait. Um... Uh, something about wait, war, like who the war is being waged by. I don't remember though. You Go already ahead. said that. Okay. No, no, no. I mean, like the the, the soldiers. Like who who's the soldiers that I don't are fighting? Say anything about that. Well, I'm like not. they can't be slaves. There might be there might be different lists online. I didn't really search that rigorously. Did you not get from Catholic.com? This, these were the <laughs> these were the five <laughs> listed in the article, so they're the most relevant to the content of the article. <laughs> Just cause. That's a gimme. Legitimate authority, like you have to be an actual organization, not just like a warlord. Right intention. Basically meaning you're sort of seeking peace, more or less. You're seeking a peaceful um, conclusion. Probability of success. Don't start a war you can't win. And it has to be the last resort. Oh, that's right. That was that was the free one I was basically missing because I'm an idiot. Yeah, well, you know. That's why we go to the smart people. <laughs> Online. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, under these uh, tenets, the first couple wars, obviously, the first and second invasion, humanity's response was clearly justified because they were facing an existential threat, right? Mm-hmm. 
They probably don't pass the probability of success, but you know what they definitely weren't going to succeed at was not fighting. <laughs> so sort of oh, relative probability of success they crushed. Um, sure enough. So in principle, the initial launch of the third invasion was kind of justified, but there were a couple things wrong with it. Um, it had legitimate authority. It kind of had just cause because the idea was to sort of finish the war. Um and it really, I mean, thanks to Ender, had a high probability of success. It did not have a high probability of success prior to Ender, but that's neither here nor there. The main things it's missing, according to Cody W. Cooper, was uh, right intention, and this is the biggie, last resort. Because, you know, sure, humanity tried to establish contact with the buggers in the first two invasions, but by the time their ships got to the homeworld, they weren't trying anymore. Even though that would have been the time to try because the, you know, the Hive Queens by that point knew that humans were intelligent and could communicate. Um, so they really didn't try any alternatives and also their intention was not to, you know, peacefully coexist with the buggers, but to completely annihilate them. I don't think that there is a situation in which complete annihilation is ever a just war. Um, plus it obviously involved citizens, which I think falls under one of these tenets. Like, annihilation involves citizens, guys. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, definitely not a just war in the end. Shocker there, guys. <laughs> but, yeah. That's that's the extent of my research. Like I said, there's a ton more on the internet, guys. You should really look it up yourself if you're interested. And if you could or, possibly or. want any more after these, like, 35 minutes of me talking. Here, here's here's the, other, you know, the other way you can go. Just go to our website. Yeah. SignifyNothingNetwork.com slash sci-fi sidebar. You can also go to Facebook.com forward slash sci-fi sidebar to uh, make comments or give us feedback or anything like that. Tell us how wrong we are again. We're always open for it. <laughs> you guys could also, uh, you know, our, our network also has a Facebook page. So it's uh, Facebook.com forward slash <laughs> signifying nothing. I think that's it. It might be network at the end of there. No, just go ahead and search Signify Nothing on Facebook. It might be Signify Nothing Network. Yeah, you should definitely uh, like and share our page. If you want to rate and review us on iTunes, that would be amazing. Um, share the podcast with anyone you know who might be interested in long-winded discussions about sci-fi ethics from amateurs. Yeah. Who's so, not uh, interested in that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm Honestly, I'm on board. Oh, wait. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> Time to start making body counts. Uh, Don't tell them. We ha- our next episode will be released uh, early February. We're shooting for like February. Uh, what's the date of the first Monday of February? No, I thought we oh, agreed February first. Did we change it? I, well, February fifth is the Monday. first Monday of February. February fifth or the first. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> and the key to you... keeping a podcast audience is to keep them on their toes. <laughs> <laughs> Constant suspense. suspense. Audio mediums are great for suspense. Oh, totally. Hey. Uh, um. Tell that we, to... Alright, you know where you can get these updates? You can get these updates on our Facebook page. So well, go ahead and promise. throw a quick uh, quick like over there. Or uh, you can email us if, you, if you're if you interested in, you know, getting in touch and you don't have a Facebook and you don't want to make an account on our, our website and uh, post on our forum. So you can uh, go ahead and email us at um, sci-fi sidebar at signifyingnothingnetwork.com or uh, snn at signifyingnothingnetwork.com. We're checking both of those at least once a year. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we get enough responses, I'd love to do a mailbag episode, Peter. Oh, that'd be interesting. I think this is already going to be its own episode and not an addendum. 
I um, think you might be right at this point. <laughs> which, you know what? Hey, guys, like, listen, if you have a preferred format, if you'd rather we just do this all together, release it as one episode that's, like, two hours long, let us know. Because, like, at this point, we are just trying to figure out kind of what works for you because they're required the same amount of effort, basically. Just I have to, like, put more theme song in. That's about it. <laughs> just add so, you know. the theme song. So just, like, let us know, all right? Um, yeah, please Tell us do. what you like, what you don't like. If you if we have six people following this page and you tell us one of the things you want, that's one-sixth of our audience, okay? Truth. Like... We'll, huge, we'll cater huge to you. Influence. We will absolutely cater to you. You have the opportunity to shape <laughs> to, a great to pod it, empire. To get it on the ground floor the of Signify Nothing Network. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, oh, wait. Real quick, let me uh, plug my other podcast. So, like, I'm starting another podcast called The Universe in You. And it's basically, I'm just going to sit there and talk about the really cool shit that's out there and try to blow your mind a little bit, or you're gonna, just going to laugh at how sad my attempt is. So, I think um, I'll blow your mind. It blows my mind. 50 50? 50 50. Maybe. Depends Three on whether out of the or not six these listeners. are theoretical physicists. <laughs> right, Maybe not their minds. Their minds are unblowable. Wait, if you're a theoretical Blast physicist, proof. actually email me, let me know, and I would love to have you on the show. If <laughs> yeah. you're not... Yeah, really turn that one around. Good, good point. Yeah, no, I'm a salesman. All right, let's keep going before we uh, run out of steam. Anyway. So I think that's it. Um, listen to my show. And we are... If you also... We have some possibility of another show hosted by my dear sister here, uh, basically about biology and, like, in infectious, infectious diseases? diseases, I don't know. Pathogens. Di- 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 pathogens. That's sorry. That's the buzzword. Pathogens. Is it? It is, is me. I don't know. You're a nerd. Look, I don't think anyone's buzzing about this right now, but I am. So I'm if you are interested, uh, let us know. Email us. You know, whatever you need to do. Like I don't know. Wait outside my house and just you know wave a sign. That'd be weird. Don't do that. Our address is. <laughs> <laughs> my social security number is one. Anyway, let's close this thing up, Peter. Alright guys, uh, so thank you very much for listening. Uh, you know, like, comment, subscribe, whatever, all that, comment. Um, you said comment twice. Yeah, well, like, really, Cece, they have to comment. <laughs> they have to. It's necessary. It's, a, it's, it's a part rule. of the pact to which you agreed when you downloaded <laughs> the, this podcast. The, the pact is sealed. This has been Sci-Fi Sidebar from the Signifying Nothing Network. God, what was the tagline? A tale told by idiots. There it is. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> All right. See you next time, guys. Mm-hmm.